Kia ora, Aotearoa, and welcome to Generally Famous. I'm Simon Bridges, and every week I talk to generally famous but always interesting guests about life, love, and what makes them tick. Today, Nick Mowbray. In his late 30s, he's already one of New Zealand's most successful entrepreneurs and business people ever. Founding with older brother Matt Zuru, today one of the largest toy companies in the world, known for its innovation, creativity, and disruption through automation. Nick, welcome. Hi, Simon. I don't know if I'm famous or interesting, but we'll give it a shot. Well, there is a generally caveat at the front, so I know you absolutely are. And um, look, today you're at the top of a multi-billion dollar set of companies, toys, consumer goods. I know it's tech and construction. I don't even kind of understand what you're doing there. You're in... I think I'm right to say 30, probably more now, actually, because the internet's always a few a, a bit late. Gl- global uh, locations, you've got many thousands of employees, but it wasn't always so. And I suppose what I what, what I know about you is that, um, yep, you've got we've mentioned of your brother Matt. Uh, you've got high profile. I think she's generally famous, actually, Sister Anna, um, and and you and you come off uh, Waikato Dairy Farm. Your, your parents are Waikato Dairy Farmers. Is there was there anything in that that was predictable, a predictive of where you, where you are now? Yeah, I'm not sure. We we, we were born in Tokaroa, grew up in Tokaroa for a while before we moved uh, north to to Cambridge or Karapiro, and we grew up. <laughs> With a, I, I think you know, my mum was a teacher, my dad was an engineer, but dad was always pushing us to do things yep. from a pretty young age, and he kind of drilled into us almost that you know when you're younger, that's the time to have a crack at something yourself and have a go, and if you just start and, and work really hard at it, you know, eventually, eventually you'll crack it, and so I, I guess that was kind of drilled into us from a pretty young age, and then we were always super competitive. Um, my parents probably always pushed us to be competitive, and we were all really competitive and competed with each other. And so I always say, like most really great entrepreneurs or success stories, always yeah, most people are, are genuinely pretty competitive. You have to want to win and, and fight to win, and, and um, I think that was a trait that we all had. Who'd win in the competitions? <laughs> Depends what <laughs> it was in. We used to have, you know, what we had. Well, so are many you the most we, we athletic have, and the sort of? Because yeah, we have just been talking about you training with Joseph Parker. Obviously, you, you know, you, you. I mean, this is all relative, right? But I would suggest. I'm sorry to everyone else in the room here. You are the most buff person in this room. <laughs> it's just the tight shirt. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not sure about that. But we'd have. Comp- didn't matter what it was. It was a competition. I remember we used to have like ice block competitions, and you had to try and. Eat your ice block the slower, so whoever could eat their ice block That's the slower. That's sadistic. The, yeah, and That's the sort for like of sadism that leads to being a billionaire. to the end. So that was, I mean, everyone, everything in our family growing up was a was a competition. Didn't matter what it was. And what I also know is, so Matt was manufacturing hot air balloons from Coke cans and plastic bags. You were sort of the entrepreneur, right? So he's sort of like the mad professor inventor. You're the entrepreneur. And you're selling them door to door. How old are you when you're doing this? Yeah, I'd say we're both um, pretty entrepreneurial for yep. sure. Um, Matt was 12 when he won the New Zealand Science Fair. Um, wow. And Dad was sort of pushing. What was that with? Model hot air balloons. So right. they, Dad and, and Matt would sort of experiment and cut up plastic bags and paper canopies and built all these different prototypes, various prototypes, until they sort of made this one with a big plastic bag and wiring and coke can on the bottom. And you'd put some mess and cotton wool in it. It would fly for about 10 kilometres and you'd chase it and then we used to make these um, Matt would kind of he's older than you right? Matt's older yeah. than me so he, I was I was quite a bit younger and he'd sort of employ me as the labour 
So we'd start sort of making these. You pay your fair, with fair pay? Yeah, I don't think I got paid at all, to be honest. I think he just <laughs> sort of wrote me into it. I remember um, not really being able to do much schoolwork. That's illegal now, you of, understand. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. He'd have me winding wire and cutting canopies and putting them in bags and folding instruction sheets. And then, yeah, we'd, we'd sort of, as I got older, we'd go door-to-door selling sort of all around New Zealand, backpacking around, selling them door-to-door. So that was... Those are pretty good lessons, actually. Knocking on a door, you don't know who you're going to get. Um, trying to, sell, like trying to sell a flying plastic bag. Yeah, um, It's not easy, so it, it, it teaches you a lot of skills. So you're confident? Confident? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean I, you, you've got it. Like, I know with door, door-to-door sales of a political kind, I, I didn't enjoy it, but I told myself I enjoyed it, and now I could just rock up to any door and at some level act like I'm the long-lost friend of whoever's there. Yeah, that is the key. I think, I think it's more... Um, being able to handle rejection over and over and over again and not let it affect you. So I think like learning that relatively early on because, again, when you're trying to sell a flying plastic bag, it's not easy. No. Um, so you face a lot of rejection, um, which isn't always that fun, but you had to keep getting back up and, and knocking on another door. Um, it's like psychology, eating the ice block slower than anyone and taking rejection door to door. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, and what, what sort of you reckon motivated you then? You think about you and your bro. Was it? I mean, let's be. Was it money, or do you think it was some that end? I don't know. A desire to create, or what? What, what do you reckon? I think it was a desire to not fail. First of yep. all, it's that paranoia. Like we don't want to fail. Like you have to do something right with your time. So, and if you've got to do something with your time, you may as well try and do it really, really well. And so it was more that almost that fear of failure, but also that competitive drive to try and do something, and, and probably almost to win, right? Like we wanted to attack something and try and work out how to how to how to figure it out. And to be honest, that took us a long time. We were it's it's hard to put into words just how naive we were in those sort of early years and how bad we were. I mean, we were bad. <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing. So um, and there's just so many great examples of that, which you look back on. It's almost embarrassing how how sort of bad we were. But we always kind of had that that thought pattern that if we continually improve and that improvement compounds eventually we'll get there and I always have the saying you either win or you learn right you never really lose you win or you learn so um, we did a lot of uh, learning in those early years yep. you, you and I share one thing and maybe possibly more than one thing but we share one thing right at here, least right? well there is that and charismatic charisma good looks that's right well there's, there's nothing wrong with that um and that is that we both started law degrees. I finished mine. You you are a law dropout age 18. You know, do you regret that there's not Mowbray and Mowbray Sons and Hamilton East, East Law or something right now? Do you know what? I was at Wellington. I was staying in, in Unicom. And Unicom was at the bottom of that big hill to get up to Vic oh, yes, at the top there. And I yes. used to look at that hill every day and I thought, not today, hill, not today. And I thought, I'm not going to walk that. So... It was more sort of a... a, a With those law texts in your bag. Exactly. I don't want to walk that hill each day. So, no, to be honest, I just got sick of the reading. It was, it was too... Um, I'm a little ADHD, so trying to focus on something that I'm not that interested in um, became difficult. So after a year, I didn't actually make it into second year. That's the, that's the truth. I think I had to average like 70-something odd percent, and I fell just short, and then I didn't make it. And then my brother, I was sort of helping him out in the summer holidays. We had a little, um, it was like a little barn in Tokoroa on our dairy farm. We were making these hot air balloons, so I'd make them in the, in the summer holidays. And then I found out I didn't make it in the second year. So we said, why don't we go to China? And I was sort of, well, nothing else to do. So, yeah, let's let's go to China. And, and then I actually did end up making it into law because obviously other, other people um, dropped out and opened up some positions. But um, at that stage, I already made the decision to, to move to China. I'm sure there's been a thousand big little decisions, probably more. But in a sense, that 
decision, your 18, nah, I'm not going to go that tried and true path of you know getting a law degree and being safe and middle class or whatever it is. Um, I'm going to drop out of that and I'm going to go to China. That's it, almost, you, looking back, back, is that kind of like one of your biggest years ever in a fateful sense? In a fateful sense, yeah. There's always forks in the road, right, in life. And so yeah. probably making that decision has been, yeah, probably one of the greatest decisions we ever made. Like being at China at that time as well, almost, what, 18 years ago now, it was just kind of going through this evolution of being a manufacturing economy to actually sort of being an innovator as well and incredible talent starting to come through. So we, we caught it at the right sort of stage on the curve. And that's just been... And it was you and Matt both went? Correct. Um, yep. We, you were over we, we there, were young guys. I mean, it was risky. My cousin also came over, right. Simon. Um, yeah, we were just, we were first living in a little apartment, 20 bucks a month, eighth floor, no lift. Um, then we lived in our little... We had a little place, a place called Function Data. It was this little tin shed down by a river. And we used to have um, about, how we, by Simon welded our, our production line, we probably had about eight, eight factory workers making these frisbees and hot air balloons. And there was a toilet, two holes in the ground. And we had a, a lady, an old Chinese lady, and she'd have a big wok on the ground, just a little gas stove and a rice cooker. And she'd put some vegetables in that in that wok and some rice, and, and we pretty much ate on like two RMB a day or like thirty or forty cents a day. So that's that's kind of how we survived. Um, and she had that wok sort of sitting right outside these little sort of holes in the ground toilets, and it was never that appetising. But that's how we lived. <laughs> we basically were wasting away. And there were no other Westerners around. Um, and then Matt still no like, gingers, Matt, no gingers, no, none of those, hundred percent none of those. But Matt Matt lived <laughs> for ten years and. Uh, as we this is Guangzhou, right? Uh, yeah, we progressively moved up factories. So then we moved to Pardu, and then we moved sort of to bigger and bigger facilities. Um, but Matt lived in our first sort of third factory. It would have been for almost ten years. Had right. a little room in the factory. So not glamorous at all. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of sacrifice. Did you? Did, I mean, I'm always interested in this because my parents. Uh, one has passed away. Sadly, he won't be listening. I'm not sure my mum will be listening either, to be honest. I feel like at key junctures, they always gave me the wrong advice. I'm interested, when you went to China with Matt, what was your parents' viewpoint on that? My mum hated it. My dad, I think, was for it. My dad was for sure for it. Um, but mum was just like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? And I got myself in all sorts of trouble in that first year in China. Being right. a young, naive, like Kiwi. I won't go into it today, but she was like, <laughs> she was going grey pretty quick. Right. It sounds, it, it, vaguely, I have sort of visions of Hangover movie or something. No, yeah. you're not, no? There yes. was some bad, I mean, I I ended up in a Chinese jail, Hong Kong jail. I Yeah, I had some, I had some interesting experiences <laughs> in those first few years. Well, can you laugh about them now? A hundred percent. Every bad decision leads to a good story. So as long as you remember that. <laughs> we'll come back to that. And so, you know, I think the other thing that is interesting about all of this is I, I know, again, you, so Walmart, Walmart, you know, the multinational mega uh, US uh, stores, they, they kind of want to see your, your um, showroom. You, you don't have one. You go door to door to try and find one. At this time, r- roughly, you, you're living under or sleeping on a mattress under a table. Yeah, well, that was so that was. Yes. Yeah, so I used to sit in China in our little factory and try and sell our first couple of products. Um, we had this night frisbee and, and this hot air balloon. The hot air balloon didn't meet any regulatory requirements globally, so that ruled that out. So we had this night frisbee that we'd copied, um, and I used to ring buyers day in, day out, just get this list of retailers around the world and email them relentlessly and had a big bottle of Coke sitting beside me, and I'd do it all night, all day, and, and, and email and ring them. 
And then very occasionally, I remember emailing Walmart for probably like four or five months, never getting any replies. So I'd keep ringing them. It would about, probably about 12 to 1 a.m. my time to, to make the right time interval work. And then one day I got, you know, I was answering. I was a guy called Ryan Halford, never forget his name. And then I had no idea what to say. I was sort of like, we're the small toy company. And like, you know, I was wondering if I could, like, you know, come meet you. And he said, well, do you have a showroom in Hong Kong? We had no idea how the industry worked and that it kind of revolved around these showrooms in Hong Kong and buyers from all over the world come and visit these showrooms multiple times a year. So I said to him, yes, I have a showroom. I'll get you that you address. Liar. I did. I, yeah, I did. I said, I'll get you the showroom address in the Ryan next couple of days. Ryan was too. He was, yeah. So then I was on a, I was on a train, concessionary pass, of course, like child's pass to save that <laughs> nine or two New Zealand dollars down to down to Hong Kong. Making um, make business is a dirty, rotten thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then um, so I went around all these toy companies sort of knocking on doors. I sort of found where the toy companies were based in an area in Hong Kong called Tim Sha Sui. So I was knocking on all these doors, sort of pitching to these toy companies, hey, can I borrow some showroom space? If I, you know, I'm going to bring the Walmart buyer in and maybe you can see your products or if I sell something, I'll pay you a commission. And everyone kind of laughed at me and, and sent me on my way. And then I found this, I found this building called South Sea Centre on the first floor. It had these little tiny glass cubicles, you know, just you know, maybe three or four square meters in size, and you could rent these things out. But they were expensive, like at the time for us. I think it was like two and a half thousand dollars US a month or something. So that was a lot of money at the time. But I thought I had no choice. Um, so we, we rented one of these little um, sort of cubicles, and. Uh, and then I lived in it as well. So I had like I went and sort of got this old table. I found some old shelving that someone had thrown away. Put them in our showroom. Um, had this mattress, and I'd wind the mattress up. I had a little fridge. I'd hide the mattress behind the fridge each day, and then I'd, there was a, the only place on the floor to put it was sort of under the table. So I'd actually sleep in that showroom, washing the public toilets. Um, and I think my second ever meeting was the buyer from Cayman Australia, and she ended up coming at nine a.m. instead of ten a.m. And I was still asleep, sort of under the table, and I could see her feet like. You'd see under the door, about like half a meter from my head <laughs> on the ground. And you grabbed your leg. And I just sat there. I was like, shit, shit, shit. This is like my second or third ever meeting. I was like, oh, no. So I had to say dead silent. And then I waited till 10 o'clock, quarter past 10. I emailed her. I said, hey, you meant to come for that 10 o'clock meeting? She said, I thought it was nine. So we rescheduled. But yeah, there was all sorts of pretty funny experiences. Um, I remember Walmart Canada came in and, and the guy was so shocked that he'd given me the meeting in this little tiny cupboard with like two products that he basically came in asked for the quotes, I'd filled out something wrong on the quote form, threw the quotes at me and like stormed out after about three minutes. I think he was embarrassed that it even like turned up to our showroom. So yeah, we used to do some pretty crazy things to break in. I remember um, like crashing, it was Dick's Sporting Goods. I, I'd recognize the buyer is at dinner on a terrace in Hong Kong. So I saw him, I went and got a rubbish bag, filled it with you know some of our products from our showroom, went down and, and crashed his dinner with his, his Shameless. Suppliers. Very, very shameless. Um, never, never managed to get in there for a few years, but we, yeah, we used to do all sorts of things. One of our one of our buyers, and I always remember those first ones, was a, was a lady from um, a department store in the US called Jen Sarah Coles. Um, it's about with a K, not like the Australian version. About 800 stores. I used to email her every day. And, and one day I got a, <laughs> an email back from her, all in capitals, that said, hey, Nick, can you please refrain from emailing me every single day? I do not have time for your daily emails. And I always go back, hey, sorry, Jen. Like, yeah, but our product's really great. Eventually she just said to me, send sample. Two, two words, that's all I got. Sent the sample. She ordered like 20,000 units of this. this night frisbee. And then we got sued on it, and she got sued, and they got pulled into the lawsuit for three years. So what we, was that about? What, what was wrong oh, with your frisbee? Yeah, we'd copied it. We didn't know what IP was. You know, when I said earlier we were really naive, we had no idea what we were doing. So we'd just found this product, and we were like, oh, this is awesome. As it turned out, it had about five patents on it, and 
um, all sorts of things. And, <laughs> that pesky patent yeah, law. And then we if had, only you'd done the, uh, the law degree, Nick. You know what? I learned how to be a lawyer after that because we had no money to defend ourselves. And I, this, this company was called Night Eyes out of Colorado. Um, Boulder, Colorado. So I went there and I went to all these law firms. Like, That'll cost you a million and a half, two million dollars to defend. Of course, we had about $30,000 to our name. So then we, we found this lawyer and I managed to convince him that we were going to win it. And I would do all the work and my sister would do all the work. We'd write all the legal case and we just needed him to put his name to it. And so he agreed. And so he managed to do it, but he got disbarred after this, by the way. Um, so <laughs> you, you and law is not like, I feel like this is not a... Yeah, but we were desperate, right? We had to defend this case and we had no money to do it. So we had to kind of be creative. So I remember just Googling everything and like writing, um, doing all our documents and then getting this lawyer to put his name to them. Um, and we ended up settling after after about three years. But yeah, that happened when I, I actually went to New York Toy Show. I stayed in a hostel in, in, in New York and um, and I'd sold them, I'd sold our night frisbee and another product we'd copied called Money Gobbler. It was like Money Bank, put the money in the mouth, went down to the stomach. We didn't know like about IP. And so I turned up at New York Toy Show, had them on this booth. Within the first morning, this lady comes, uh, sorry, this guy comes storming onto the booth to our distributor, um, which was from Night Eye, saying, you've knocked off the Frisbee. Well, our patents are da So our distributor, Dave, said, hey, Nick, you need to take the Frisbee off the booth. It's sort of the first morning of the show. So take the Frisbee off the booth. And I'm like, oh, I'll sell a money gobbler, right? Like, let's get into it. Let's sell the money gobbler. I thought the first guy, then this lady comes onto the booth about an hour later. She, her whole business for 20 years is making these like animal money banks and we've just completely ripped it. So she's like storming and she just goes, it just loses the plot. And so our distributor is like, Nick, what is going on? Like, what are these products? So let me take that one off the booth as well. So before the first morning of New York Toy Show, we'd even got through it. I had to take both our products off the booth. So I went back to China. Said to my brother, "You got this whole like you know this IP patent thing. I think we need to like start coming up with some of our own ideas." So, yeah, there were all these like wild stories in the early days. Like we were bad. Like we had no idea what we were doing. Um, and, and there is a moral to this, which is that you know, look, um, it's not glamorous. It's a grind. You know, there's crazy twists and turns. You're sleeping in a mattress. You're you're getting abused by people. They're not replying your emails. So you, it's a it's a long hard path. From that to where you are right now, yeah, hundred percent. I you think you still have the hunger. Oh yeah, every day. Yeah, I probably work harder now than I did way back when. Almost, no, maybe not. Probably the same. It doesn't really stop. But yeah, I remember like the first couple of years, me and Matt, we we, we celebrated Christmas at McDonald's because we wouldn't spend the equivalent of three bucks on a on a, on a you know on a Big Mac. And I used to play this trick at McDonald's. I used to eat half my like fries and go back up and say, you didn't fill up my fries just so I could get some fries back. Like, my, my, we were desperate. My bloody we son, I won't say which one does that. That's yeah. not what well, I can I say. I don't he, do that. Now we he's going to say, well, it's okay, Nick Mowbray did that, <laughs> right? Um, but I look back on that stuff and I think, man, we were we, we, we really lived on, everyone's like, we really live on a couple of dollars or a dollar a day? And I'm like, yeah, we really lived on a couple of dollars a day for years, like years and years and years and years. And today, MBR's got your family worth three bill or something. I reckon that'd be conservative. You won't tell me, don't worry. But what I am interested in is how would you describe who you got from that living on the bones of your ass to um, one of the best toy companies and much broader than that, I know, but one of the best toy companies in the world? I think it was that that, that paranoia of failure and then that drive to succeed to just get up every day and scrap and fight and try and work out how to win and then you know eventually we started to we weren't very good at developing toys but eventually we started to develop you know a few things that we thought would work most of them wouldn't we we managed to make a profitable business by just like selling enough product to new customers we'd never get a reorder because it wasn't successful and then doing the next one the next one the next one and then eventually I started like signing up a bunch of products from US companies that were only selling in the US 
but they make good products and I was distributing them sort of globally. So I'd do deals with them and they were good products. So that sort of opened up all these this distribution in sort of other countries. And then from there, we started to get like the odd hit. We had Zebes and we had a product called Schnooks. Then we had Robofish, which sort of took us to 100 million. So it was sort of step by step, it was an evolution. And then, you know, before we know it now, we're in, you know, the top few toy companies in the world. And yeah, we just got better and better and better. I think people underestimate, is that, there's that great saying, right, that you sort of overestimate what you can do in the short term and underestimate what you do in the long term. Yes. And I, I think there's nothing truer. Like we have this relentless mindset around compounding continuous improvement. And we say always, we suck now compared to where we will be in the future. So we want to look back on today in a year and say, we weren't even good then. So it's this mindset of never flatlining. And I think that compounding improvement happens to us every year. And we almost get double or three times as good year on year on year on year. And so suddenly you become Exponential. The best, you become the best in the world at what you do. And it's actually in a relatively short period of time. And I think that kind of sums up our journey. You, you've given me a lot already, but I mean, let me ask you this anyway. And if you want to say what well, I've already told you, but at a really high level, what have you learned over the last 15 years, couple of decades on all this stuff? I think a lot of lessons. I think a lot of lessons that I start to incorporate into what we call our Zuru DNA, whether it's you know creating strong frameworks for the teams with which we win, uh, with which we play in. It's you know um, framework things around talent density. We have a thing in our DNA called brains trust, which doesn't allow anyone to flatline. We actually have layer and layer um, within the Zuru DNA. Um, I could probably go on for ages about our Zuru DNA, actually. Um, well, let me um, ask you this, and I'm not trying to be controversial. But it's interesting what you've said. I mean, do you think, you know, when you look and you tell us that journey, that's remarkable, right? And you've been there on your bones, your backs, you've been the, the mattress and all of that. But, and, and I know, you know, for example, I think you've just won a court case in the US, a, you know, a significant one. Have you had to fly or sail close to the wind to get where you are? I don't think we've had to sail close to the wind. I think it is down to like pure perseverance. It's the people that can stick it out the longest and almost sacrifice the most for the longest and continuously get better that I think eventually succeed. And I think just most people aren't willing to put in the amount of years of persistence and keep getting up to get there. And that's why so few people probably end up succeeding. So I think it's really that ability to keep getting knocked down and just keep getting back up and keep moving forward. But um, just as importantly, to keep learning from all the things you do wrong and improving them and, and relentlessly getting insights, right, and, and using those insights to what, what would you What would your advice be to the next Nick Mowbray, you know, a young guy or girl sitting in Te Awamutu or Invercargill, wherever they are? Um, think big. I think think at scale. I think that's maybe a thing that most New Zealand companies or people don't necessarily do. You've got to think big because everyone at the end of that are just people and everything's about Relationships, so it's almost as easy to work at scale to go out and win a Walmart as it is maybe the corner store, right? Yeah. So, at the end of the day, like I always say, uh, think big, go after something at scale, persist, fight hard, like work hard to get there, work at how you're going to win. Um, I love the saying from Sun Tzu: the victorious strategist uh, has won the fight before he enters the arena. The losing strategist fights first and looks for victory later. So, really line up from A to Z how you're going to win, like have a thesis. And then go after it. Just, just you know, you got to start right. You got to start, and you got to keep fighting. You got to get every day and fight and scrap, and eventually you work it out. Eventually you get to the top of the hill. Um, and so I think that 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 was sort of the, you know, I think you know if I look back, that would be the 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 thing that I realised is that if you just start in something and you have a mindset that I'm going to improve and I'm going to work it out, eventually you do. If you have that mindset, most people get a little nervous to maybe 
maybe start and then fight it um, for, for, for long enough or they get too maybe personally connected to their idea rather than really like adapting and getting insights and evolving and, and improving along the way. I'd also say probably like look after your health a bit more. We were, we were pretty brutal. Uh, we didn't really look after ourselves very well um, over probably a decade. Um, so I think without your health, you don't have much. So I think that's kind of important as well. Mm. Today on Newsable, are the Waz in trouble? What the Warriors need to do to get back on track after a month without any wins. Plus, the story of the Canterbury cocaine cartel and introducing the most boring man in the world. What do you need a cure to sleeplessness? For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Look, enough of that non-serious stuff. I want to ask you something that really matters. Bunch of balloons, X-Shot, Rainbow Corns, Robo Alive, Smashes, S-Surprise. Which is your favourite toy? Ooh, what really matters? What's favourite toy? <laughs> oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, it's like children. You can't choose. Our biggest brand is Five Surprise and Mini Brand. What's Five Surprise? Uh, five Surprise. Did I say yes, Surprise? Shows how much five I know. Sur- Sorry. Yeah, five Surprise uh, is three of the top ten toys in the world currently. Um, and they're perfect little miniatures of big brands. Um, I think we've shipped a billion of them in the last 24 months. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a significant um, property. Um, but what's my favourite? I probably can't go past Eggshop. And yeah, that's what we're building I, there and the innovation we're like driving in the in the blaster category. Have you ever used it on your part, Jamie? I mean chasing Always, around to the yeah. you know, give her a good smash in the face of you know, from the Xbox X shot. Yeah, there's a few there's a few blasters always floating around the <laughs> office as well. So Um and, and look for the uninitiated, what is the X shot? X shot's our dart blaster brand. And I should emphasize they don't hurt or anything. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, absolutely. Ali not. Williams, um, your, your sort of brother-in-law or whatever, is out on the super yacht. Are you chasing around one of those, <laughs> smashing it out on him? Yeah, he's too easy to beat. So, you know. <laughs> um, and and of course, look, you know, Kim Kardashian, Bieber, these people. Are, are you mixing with the rich? And you told me you're not generally famous, but are you mixing with them? Are you, are you are you shamelessly as you have in the past, handing them egg shots and and pulling out the, the the smartphone to capture this? Yeah, no. I mean, look, I'm 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 relatively lucky now, I guess, in the position we're in that you know we can be connected to to lots of interesting people. Um, so yeah, I get to spend a lot of time with people like the Kardashians or. Um, yeah, just a number of people. Do you I guess. like them, or are they? Do you know what? Like Chris is amazing, great person. Chloe's amazing. Actually, they're all really great. They're genuinely nice people. Um, spent a bit of time this year with Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively at their place in New York. Um, but you know what? Lovely, genuine people. Um, Not and all- that might be a surprise to everyone, right? But like that, they turn on with the cameras. Like genuinely, there's no nicer person than Chris Jenner that I've. That, that I could I couldn't speak highly enough. My experience, people who are top in their game, if you want to put it that way, generally are you know great people. Right, this is the odd exception, but fundamentally that's sort of. So. I think yeah. that's part of getting to where they they got to. Right, you can still be competitive, you can still push hard, and you can compete hard, but I think you still need to be a good person. And just on the toys, because this really does matter. What's um, What's the? I mean, as 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 we'd say in Tarot, what's the co-popper? What's the ethos? Is it, what, what is your um, 
difference here around toys from say a Lego or a Hasbro or what's what's going on that is it in your production method or is it in the thought that goes into the kind of toy and thinking like a child or what what's going on there's layers to it I think how we set up our business it gives us huge advantages most of our competitors outsource all their production to third-party uh, contract manufacturers we build a lot of our own facilities ourselves but we go a step further and we automate a lot of our production so we have Two big offices in India, one in Calcutta, one in Ahmedabad, which builds all the software for a lot of our automation. And then we have a facility in China with you know, a few hundred automation engineers. And we build a new automated process on average every two weeks that wow. we're automating a process within a, in a production um, process. So it's a huge advantage for us, not just being vertical, but then automating a lot of our production. And then, of course, ideas. Ideas and innovation are, are what kind of drive the toy industry. So if you can win on ideas, on innovation, you can win on production, and then you can win on a new platform. Uh, we're the number one toy company in the world on TikTok. TikTok is, you know, if you look at America, 200 million Americans now spend more time on TikTok than any other media platform. So being at the cutting edge of, of new platform and, and how we drive data-driven marketing, we do no traditional marketing now in our toy business. A couple of countries are an exception, Spain, Italy. Um, everything is digitally um, driven. So we always try and stay, I guess, one step ahead. Sometimes the bigger companies are a little bit more cumbersome and, and, and less agile to, to move. At a level then, you, is what you're saying to me that at your heart, you're actually a tech and innovation business? I think if you put that across our whole business, at our heart, that's where we, that's what we are. We produce products, yes, um, but we are a tech and innovation business. Uh, you know, some of the factories and facilities we build are... Um, and until you see them, it's hard to almost uh, comprehend the level of complexity in building a product without people. Take, even take something like Bunch of Balloons that's built you know, completely by robots. It's difficult. There's all these like straws and tubes and little O-rings over every one and balloons put over them. To do that by robot at scale um, is, is not easy. So that technology and all the technology and automation we build is sort of at our heart, and that's across Zuru Tech. We're building buildings on production lines. We have over... I think almost 400, almost 500 people now um, on Zuru Tech across software and automation and, and engineering. All the way across our um, consumer goods business, we just built a 60,000 square meter nappy facility. We just finished our personal care facility. We're just building a state-of-the-art laundry um, facility. And at our heart is, is that manufacturing and automation. Um, In your videos um, that I've seen, you know, it, it's it's kind of like Silicon Valley-esque. You know, got these big open plan places. There's automation. There's, you know, young millennials who look kind of cool and hip wandering around. Um, you, you have said, I think, something like this, that um, you aspire to be up there like an Apple, a Tesla, a Google. Have I got that right? Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I think that's. Um, that I think we want to wrap our our company in like a purpose, like you know, going forward. And it's, you know, toys, consumer goods. Yes, they're big categories. Yes, we can create. You know, we've created a really big business around them. Um, yes, that's great. We're attaching a lot of our consumer goods brands to have a purpose um, connected to, to to them as well. And I think that's really important going forward is, is purpose-led businesses and purpose-led brands. But I think purpose is going to become more important. So they're probably all a stepping block to solving what we see as you know one of the biggest problems in the world and one of the biggest categories which is you know making building more affordable housing more affordable how do we make it 10 times more affordable um because it's so out of reach now of such a large percentage of of the world and shelter is of course pretty important right so how do we all of these things are almost stepping stones to us solving a, a bigger problem um and wrapping zuru in a, in a bigger purpose right long term so you know i think that's our whilst i say like 
putting our name next to those names, I think I also want to make sure, or we want to make sure that we wrap Zuru in a, in a bigger purpose, which is solving actually a big problem. And by solving that big problem, hopefully it's going to get us to those type of levels. You're clearly in saying that, you know, um, and I don't mean this is a negative thing, but you're dissatisfied, you're not content. Um, are you happy? Do you know what? I think, you know, I think that's a trait of like any, any good entrepreneur. You always have to be kind of constructively dissatisfied. And it's not so much about, it's, it's more about the process and the challenge and the competition of it and the thesis. You've got to have a thesis on something and then you go and execute that thesis and you see if you're right. So there's almost a, an element of, of, of not knowing, right, and, and wanting to be proved correct or in many cases incorrect, right? And, and that's kind of like the fun of the game. It's a hobby. Like for us, it's a, it's a, it's a hobby as well. Like it's a passion, it's a love. Um, that drive is, is, is part of it. So, you know, for, for us, we don't really... We do it to sort of take the next step up and and to solve the next bigger and bigger and bigger problem. So, yeah, I think we're always constructively unsatisfied. I think that's like a trait of any kind of good entrepreneur. Um, You want to keep pushing forward. And part of that's paranoia of going backwards. And so naturally you kind of continue to push forward um, as well. But, yeah, I'm happy. I love doing what I do. Um, I'll do it forever. I don't think I'll ever retire. This is what I love doing. When I'm not doing it, you know, when I when I was sort of sick and I came home from Hong Kong to New Zealand um, for surgery, and I had to do nothing, and I hated it. It was the worst possible thing. That's when we started Zero Edge, which is you know sort of the consumer goods side, because literally doing nothing and having nothing to sort of go after or no kind of challenge, um, my brain just um, sort of just doesn't work like that. I need to sort of be doing something, I guess. Because you could, um, I mean, I mentioned you well, you're absolutely one of the wealthiest New Zealanders. Um, you're wealthy in international terms. Um, you, you know, you've got the dot-com mansion, all these things going on. Um, you, you could buy a couple of islands, um, rent out some motels to the government and sit back and do nothing. Yeah, I couldn't think of anything worse. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Um, what does wealth mean to you? What does wealth mean to me? I think it means time. It gives you time to do what you want and how you want to do it and it allows you maybe to go and solve bigger problems. Like wealth allows you, it gives you the opportunity, right, to do things that, you know, a lot of people can't do. So it gives us this opportunity to go after and try and solve, you know, we're investing a lot in Zuru Tech, right? We've got, you know, like I said, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people working on it and it is a big ambition. No one's ever built... Uh, something like this where you have a fully customized input and it's fully automated output. There's no factory that's done this at scale uh, in any category in the world. So we're, we're trying to solve a, a really big problem and I think wealth allows you to go and try and solve those big problems. Um, so I think you know it's a privilege to be able to actually take on bigger and bigger challenges because I, of the wealth we generated. Because am I right, you're not big on borrowing and, and so on. If we think about it, you, I think I'm right to say you'd, you'd, your old man lent you 20 grand. I hope you paid him back with interest. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Is he still in the Toyota Corolla <laughs> or the Hilux? Or is he's he not. a little bit better than that these yeah, days? He's, yeah, he's most definitely not. <laughs> uh, yeah, like look, we, 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 we never borrowed. We've never been to a bank. You know, we didn't really realize, I don't think we could have got a bank loan in those early days. We were in China. We didn't really even think about it. But you know, when we've made our first million, we had a month where we actually lost like I think 200 grand and we sat down and we were like, holy shit, we lost, you know, all this money. Like from this day forth, we're never going to lose a cent. And, and you know, we just we just cognitively said, you know, if, if we're ever going to lose money, we'll live on nothing. We'll do whatever it takes to make sure we, you know, continuously profitable. And ever since that day, like 17 years ago, right, we've just continued to, to sort of build and be more and more profitable. So 
it was just a, a decision. Um, so we've never had loans, never gone to banks, nothing, nothing like that. My um, my old man, speaking of old man, he used to say money isn't everything, but it sure does help. And um, I mean, you've mentioned. Um, you know, having to come back and I think have an operation. And you've also told us, you know, you would have looked after your health more, you know, g- going back this period of time, you know, you're going at it and now, you know, I can tell you're a really healthy um, guy. You, you've suffered Crohn's disease. I mean, t- t- tell me yeah. about that. And I mean, um, uh, how you've got through that. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know what? It's like one of those things that sneaks up on you in a way. You don't actually know how sick you are until maybe you look. I look back on it now and I think, wow, that's crazy because I was super fit and healthy till I was about maybe 26, 27. And then I kind of was starting to get unwell, but I was fine. I'd just like keep pushing through. I was on a bunch of drugs. And then probably when I had like 30, 31, I went downhill quickly to the point where I, I, don't know, I lost all my hair, um, didn't have a hair on my body. I was down to like 66, 67 kgs. Wow. I looked like I'd come out of a death camp, to be honest. And I was, you know, seriously unwell. I got so much um, Crohn's kind of arthritis in my joints that I could barely get out of bed some days. I couldn't walk. Um, so it was, it was pretty. It was, yeah. It was like on reflection. It almost, it almost feels like a a time in my life that I, I remember it, but you kind of try and block it out now almost. Um, so it was for, for sort of, I don't know, probably three years there. I was suffering pretty, pretty bad to the point where I had to sort of come home to New Zealand. And I didn't realize, I, I knew I was super sick, but on reflection, I look back at the photos and it's, it's quite scary actually. Um, and so I had to get surgery. and I had my whole um, large bowel removed. Um, so the whole thing basically. And when they were taking it out, sort of coming out in bits and crumbling and they had to add an extra surgery. And so I did over three surgeries. Um, and yes, yeah, so I, I no longer have a large bowel, which is, sounds kind of strange, but they make a new one out of your small bowel. It's amazing what modern medicine can do. Mm. And, uh, and literally overnight I became... Uh, it's incredible, like the, the sort of the transformation. But I was, yeah, I was seriously unwell. I probably, I don't know, I don't know if I had have kept along that road, how long I would have uh, would have lasted. Do you think? I mean, it clearly physically changed you, and you've described that. Do you think it changed you in other ways? I mean, up here in your head. Do you know, what? I'd like to think it should have changed me more. Um, I, I always say like that. It's hard to um, it's hard to switch off the drive, and so you know, even when I was really sick. I started Zuri Edge and I, I hired a bunch of um, kind of grads from, from Waikato University, most of which are all still with us today and they're all incredible. And I sort of made them drop out of university, most of them. Um, and I was sort of doing meetings from my bedroom, right, on the days I like couldn't get out of bed because of the arthritis in my joints and I was so sick. But I would sort of, that drive, that drive to still keep doing something almost overrode like my sickness. Um, uh, um, and so I, I, I kind of think, you know, today that period of my life I almost like block it out which is a dangerous thing because now I'm back to like working really hard and probably not looking after myself as well as I should I I definitely try to now I I keep telling myself every day to or every week to do something or do many things that are helping out my health but yeah I feel like I probably should reflect on it more actually Um, but I'm not very good at it. Yeah, I, I, no, I empathise. I know the feeling at a level, and I suppose you know some would say we well, can't a leopard can't change their spots, but you know maybe we've got to try and kind of uh, do that sometimes. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, you spend, if we think about you and and you, you know your your wonderful partner Jamie, you spend quite a lot of time. I'm right to say in the US internationally. Um, 
I mean, if we think about the culture over there and the business way and you contrast it with New Zealand, do you wish New Zealand had a bit more of the kind of can-do US sort of way of doing things? Or what's your... Yeah, look, what's your shtick on that? No, I feel like we're not as ambitious as maybe we should be. I feel like we think it's harder than maybe it actually is. And I come back to that point that everyone's human. So if you can, if you can work out the problems you're solving for, and you can frame that at scale to customers at scale, then you can often go and win at scale. And it's not necessarily as hard as, as everyone thinks. Um, it is hard, don't get me wrong. You have to still work at it for a long period of time and it's difficult. Really what you're saying, a lot of it's mind over matter. I think it's mind over matter. I think it's like ambition. And if you think big enough and you think at scale and you go after it and you're really determined to get there and win, eventually you will. And I just feel like maybe we, we're not as necessarily culturally as ambitious. Maybe it's just part of our culture, right, um, as well. Because you, I mean, I, I, I take it, um, it sounds a bit kind of twee or cliche or something, but you love New Zealand. You, are you, you, do do sure. you sense of yourself as a, a proud New Zealander? 100%. Um, you're outspoken, though, and by the way, I like that, right? So I'm not, I'm not at all... Depends. I was a little um, outspoken in COVID. Cause yeah, well, I was, was going to say that to you. I mean, look, there was, you know, and on LinkedIn, you're, 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 you've been a bit quiet lately. Um, it's a bit commercial, but actually you've had some what I would call kind of, um, let's say, quality political posts around um, highly critical of multinationals, for example, making big bucks and not paying the COVID subsidy back, um, at times really critical of the government. Um, it was a piece, I think, the star this year, um, NZ deserves better than this from in terms of the government's mediocrity and so on. I mean, um, tell me what you really think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I, yeah, the whole... The whole COVID piece, I just, I just feel like, yeah. If I look back on it, right, I think I did a piece at the end of two thousand and twenty. I just felt, I'm not a hundred percent sure, like the the macroeconomic understanding, maybe at a government level all the time. And I just, I felt like cutting our interest rates to 025 percent and 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 printing seventy billion dollars, or was it twenty five percent of our GDP in that period when we were really unaffected by COVID for you know the best part of two years, wasn't that? I just thought that was a huge mistake because I kind of looked at it in practical terms and I said, okay, we're, we're, we're going to lose tourism in New Zealand, but we're COVID-free. But there's a net to tourism because people aren't leaving the country and going out of the country, right? So maybe call it $10 billion we lose there and we're going to lose international education. So maybe the shortfall is like 12 or $13 billion, right, that we need to maybe inject into the, the economy to be at balance. But then on top of that, cutting interest rates to almost zero, in my mind, is almost criminal, right? Because it's obviously going to fuel massive inflation and massive asset inflation. Um, and we're going to see the problems now, and we're really reactionary. But when like, the facts keep changing, you kind of got to change your your approach, and we're always going to pay for that on the backside. And so when I wrote that article, I was looking there, and I was kind of feeling like a little bit angry about it at the time, right? Like, why are we doing this? It doesn't make sense. Like, we are in a different position to every country in the world. We've been COVID-free for so long, we don't need to, to do this. And I remember Grant Robinson coming out saying, we're going to you know, pump into the economy unprecedented stimulus on a per capita basis and he said that, and I thought, that's really like a not a smart thing to, to say at the, at the time. So I think I was just frustrated by it, and now we're being really reactionary. The other way, we have this tendency just to react to the moment without thinking about the lag. So now we're throwing interest rates right up the other way and going, oh, we've still got inflation today, but actually there's a massive lag to all of this, right? So we're now going to ruin lots of people, lots of families on this backside, right? Um, as their mortgages come off as well. So 
I just feel like on both sides. Um, Gone too far each way. Exactly. Right? Going we too keep far. Going too far um, each way, and and I, and I thought it was relatively obvious at the time. Um, and that's probably why I was a little bit outspoken on it because I just felt like there was a fundamental like misunderstanding of um, things at almost a macro level. And so as an incredibly travelled uh, Kiwi, and you look at our little country at the bottom of the world, pessimist, not sure, optimist. I think I'm always an optimist. I think I'd like to think I'm always an optimist. There's like a little bit of pessimism maybe in there. I think we're definitely, I mean, look, we're, we're, there's no question we're running into like a, a tough period the next 24 months. We're already seeing leading edge kind of consumer demand coming off in the US, big tech companies, right, starting to lay off people. Things can go the other way really quickly as well. Um, and so I think, you know, over the next 12 months, it's going to be economically tough. I don't think there's any avoiding that, right, when so many more fixed mortgages come off and, and onto these new rates, people are just going to have less money to spend. Um, and there's going to be tougher times and companies are going to have tougher times um, as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, right, the only way to increase prosperity for everyone is to increase productivity on a per person or per capita basis. So we have to think in productivity terms and we, you know, we're probably going to have to dig deep a little bit, right, like as a country over the next couple of years because we've probably dug ourselves into a bit of a hole um, yeah, we were always going to have to dig ourselves a certain level of hole over COVID. I think we dug a far too deep a hole. Um, and now we're going to have to dig our way out, and that means we're going to have to work hard, right, to, to, to lift productivity on a per capita basis. What about you personally? You've told me you're going to, well, I'm paraphrasing, but die with your boots on, um, you know, go, go and at it um, uh, in a sense till the end. I mean, what about personally? How do you, when you look back, when you're, Let's be let's be aspirational here. Let's be an optimist. 107, <laughs> because someone on Silicon Valley's come up with some sort of long aging serum that maybe you will have helped fund. Um, how do you see your future? And how do you want to look back on? I'll tell you what. First of all, I'd be pretty happy if I made it to three digits. Bring up the time. <laughs> that uh, that would that would surprise me. Um, but that would be great. Uh, look, I think I think if we can if we can solve bigger and bigger problems for the world, if we can actually be a big contributing factor to solving big kind of macro level issues, I think that would be something we could be proud of, and I think that's what we're trying to work towards. Everything's a stepping stone, right? As I said earlier, so everything is a stepping stone towards trying to like solve potentially bigger and bigger problems. And I think, like I said earlier, like the more purpose led you know businesses become over time, I think you know that's going to be good for the, for, for the world as well. Okay, I'm going to wrap up and ask you questions I ask every guest. We call this section general knowledge. What single object would you say from your house? Or I'm going to say houses. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, my golf clubs? <laughs> <laughs> what, what are they? <laughs> just some timeless golf. Nothing too fancy. Just are you any golf. good? Nah, I'm okay. You know what? Like golf is the most frustrating game in the world. It's the biggest time suck in the world, but it's just it's a, it's a, it's a challenge that you can never beat right so you keep trying and you seem to somehow keep trying and get worse so I don't, I don't get the game but I love it and I hate it ruins a good walk as I think Winston Churchill or someone it like really that does sense. what's the best night out you've ever had oh. and look give me some famous people surely there oh. was Kim Kardashian on one side and I don't know I've had a few good nights out of my time um, <laughs> I don't know if I can pin it on one uh, oh man yeah, there's been some there's been some good nights. I can't I don't think I can pin you down one, to be honest. I'll come back to you. Fair enough. What's the best advice given to you and who gave it? Do you know what? It was probably yesterday and I've probably used it today. It's like wrap your business in a bigger purpose. I right. think that's like really good advice, right? Like wrap yourself 
in a bigger purpose. Do you have a that sense of that purpose? Behind. I think I do have a sense of that purpose, but um, I got that advice from Greg Ford and I was talking to him yesterday and he yeah. was just saying, like, wrap your business and yourself in a bigger purpose and that's something that people get behind. And I hope, I when, was really good I hope when he was at Walmart, he helped buy the Zuru toys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he's great. Nick, thank you so much for being on. It's been great to talk with you about all of these things. I feel like the moral is, you know, when you're seven, learn to be the last guy licking the lolly, uh, the, the the icicle. What do we call it? I mean, ice pop. <laughs> what do we pop. call these? The ice pop. Popsicle. Um, the ice and, pop. and you never know, you might grow up to be a billionaire. You've been listening to Generally Famous. There's a new episode every Wednesday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash generallyfamous or wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, if you follow us on Apple or Spotify, any of the podcast apps, in fact, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Sounds good, right? Thanks to my producers, Chris Reed and Jen Black. I'm Simon Bridges. I really appreciate you listening. If you liked listening to this pod, Help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.